Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. I am away this week, but Eric Fawcett will be holding down the fort and hosting a show where he talks about Florida's tough loss at Rupp Arena in Kentucky and then previews the Gators' matchup with Alabama. Special guest this week, Jacob Rudner and Graham Hall, 24-7 Sports. Hope you guys enjoy. Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. This is not Neil Blackman. This is Eric Fawcett playing out of position as the host. Um, it's I, I always say this because it's funny, but I, I've been on so many podcasts, but I, I've hosted very few, and I've got to I've got to say I'm I'm a, I'm a little bit uh, a little bit nervous here, but I'm very excited to be joined first by Jacob Rudner. Um, I people, of course, if you uh, follow Florida basketball, um, he is the guy um, that is so good with recruiting, so good with with covering the team, and uh, just a, a very welcome addition to uh, the group of people that that cover Florida basketball. So, um, Jacob, thank you for being here. Thank you, Eric, for uh, for having me on. Glad to uh, be doing this with you, hosting. I've I've been on it with Neil as the host before, so this is a an exciting change of pace. And uh, yeah, no, I really appreciate what you guys do and uh, for having me on. Yeah, I mean, I, I I joke with Neil, and and I mean it, you know, mostly joking, but half serious. Like he he kind of does me dirty because, um, you know, we wanted to have you on the show, but you know, he waited until I was gone and he needed another host. And then same thing with Graham. I never get on with Graham, and uh, uh, because it's always when I'm gone. So if this is my chance at, at getting guys on that you know we both wanted to talk to, so take that, Neil. Um, but again, we're we're happy to have you. Um, so. Let's. Uh, we're coming just uh, on the heels of, of course, a loss to Kentucky. One that, uh, from a score standpoint, from a resume standpoint, it wasn't like the Gators got embarrassed. It wasn't like something that the Gators took a really bad loss. But uh, you know, the Gators are probably going to need to steal one of those here, um, or a couple of those, if they want to uh, reach their goal of, of uh, reaching the NCAA tournament. But I think the one thing that is going to stick out from a Florida standpoint is the outstanding Colin Castleton performance. Um, first of all, uh, where do you put this among you know Colin Castleton performances all time, and uh, what did you see that made him so successful last night? I mean. I- all time, it's got to be up there. He he put together a performance that I think he was one of eight players in college basketball in the last century or something to put up the numbers that he did and just to, to exactly review those for you. That was 25 points on 9 of 16 shooting, 8 rebounds, 5 assists, 3 blocks, and a steal. Uh, the last person to do that in Rupp Arena against Kentucky was Dwayne Wade. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, it was a very special performance, and it, it you know that's one of those that will go down as – as probably among his best, if not his best, just considering where it was and who the opponent is. Um, and, and what made him so successful, I think that's kind of just what we've seen from Colin this entire season for the most part. There have been uh, games where he has not been able to play at his best, and, and he has been very open uh, in saying that when he is struggling, it comes down to him getting himself into his own head. Uh, the shots don't fall for him sometimes if he allows himself to get too emotional. And, and last night, I think we saw him keep all of that in check, especially offensively. Uh, put together a great second half performance, seven of nine from the field, 19 of his 25 points. Uh, But I think the highlight of his night is something that doesn't necessarily show up on his stat sheet. uh, And it was his defensive performance against Oscar Shibwe, uh, two of 14 shooting with four points. Obviously the rebounding was a little bit of an issue. Shibwe, I believe had 13 boards uh, and quite a few of those were on the offensive end. Uh, But, but, you know, that was a really special performance, I think, Eric, and and definitely something that, uh, 
Florida needed. I think that that was obviously a huge reason why they were able to keep it so competitive last night. And it, and it will go down as one of his all-time bests. Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed out the defense as well. Like to have Oscar Shibway have such an inefficient night shooting. Um, that's obviously someone who's the player of the year returning. And uh, he definitely got his on the offensive glass. And and I do think that there was that was maybe just the one area where I think Castleton, you know, who had an again an outstanding performance. There's a couple of those box outs that that he missed or just wasn't super engaged. But um I, I think that something that was cool about Castleton, and like one thing I try not to do is play body language doctor, but like you look at the way that that Castleton kind of was, and it wasn't when you were t- kind of talking about how he balances his emotions with not being, you know, being a, like playing with the positive side of the emotions, but not letting it get, uh, get negative. And he had, uh, he had some of those moments where he, uh, just had those like fist pumps after and ones or, or getting fouls that it wasn't, it wasn't too much, but you could tell he was locked in and still like playing with that kind of emotion on the good side. So if he can bottle that up and keep that going, um, that's pretty huge. Um, so Florida, uh, improved slightly, um, from an offensive efficiency standpoint on Ken Palm, which is the one we kind of track. Um, they had one of their better offensive nights that they've had in, in, in recent nights against Kentucky, who um, is not a normal Kentucky team in terms of they're usually awesome defensively this year. They haven't been as much. Did you see the Gators? Like, do you, do you think the Gators played better offensively in this game? Or do you think it was Colin Castleton hero mode? It's a good question. And I, and I think the answer is a little bit of both. I, I think Florida's offensive performance in the first half was was severely underwhelming. I thought that the shot selection at times was a little bit rushed. Um, I thought that they had opportunities to create more offense that they didn't really take advantage of. Uh, one thing that I noticed quite early on was that Shiba was really struggling to defend ball screens. And Florida was able to kind of get to the basket pretty successfully off of those. And they didn't really go back to it as frequently as I thought they probably should have in the first half. And you'll notice, Eric, in the second half, they were extremely successful. I mean, they, they scored 45 points after the break. Mm. Uh, and like you said, it, 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 the game went down as one of their better offensive performances. But, but what does that say about that second half? Because Florida shot 26.9% from the field before halftime, just 22 points. One of six from three. You click over to the second half. 16 of 29 from the field, 55.2%. Uh, just under 40% from three. And, and one other thing, they ended the game on a six of eight run from the field. I don't remember the last time we've seen Florida shoot the ball so consistently uh, over any stretch of time like that. So I, do I think that the game overall was a better offensive performance? Yes. Uh, but I do think that that could be a little misleading because I think that the second half was so excellent and it kind of washed away at what was really a poor first half on the offensive end. Uh, And and what was interesting to me is that we also kind of saw a little bit of a flip when the offense picked up. I think the defense kind of faded away a little bit Uh, and and the game to me lacked a little bit of balance. So to to answer your question, yes, uh, I I think we saw some improvement as the game went on. And and later on in the contest, I think that there were some some moments where I saw some things from Florida that we hadn't necessarily seen yet before uh, that were very encouraging as we get towards the, the end of the season with a team that's making a tournament push. Uh, but, but again, I think that this team really needs more balance uh, on that end so they can try and spread some of that success over a 40-minute you know, span. Okay, so you have led me into my next uh, question. Uh, you tweeted something out. I won't read it uh, word for word. That's a dangerous game and uh, you know, reading people's tweets to them. But uh, you pointed out that no player has attempted more threes on the Gators than Kowasi Reeves, and he's shooting 28% from deep. Um, I think that, that was... Um, I think that, yeah, that was, that's after, after the game, I think he's up, he's, or now he's 28% from deep because he was 0 for 3. Um, 
So you kind of pointed out that like, maybe that's not a very sustainable offensive approach to have your player who takes the most threes be at 28% from deep. I'm going to add one more number to that. He is now 15% from three in SEC play. So that's, you know, he's 28% on the season, but he's 15% in SEC play. And that's seven of 46 from the three point line. So, you know, the sample size is getting to be one that um, is a, you know, decently sizable one. Uh, so what do you make of his struggles and what do you think you do with him if you're Florida staff? Interestingly, I don't know that the solution is to stop playing him. I, I saw a lot of people, whether it was on you know message board situations or even on Twitter, uh, calling for Kwesi Reeves to be benched. And to be clear, I, I don't think that that's the solution. I think that Kwesi is a truly valuable defender. I think that he's a valuable athlete for this team. Uh, I think that his potential potency as an offensive player is a threat that opposing teams have to account for, even if he isn't at his best as a shooter. Uh, that being said, I think that it's time to probably encourage him to maybe ease back a little bit on the total amount of threes attempted because we're, we're starting to reach this threshold where I, I, it's not a fluke anymore. You know, that you go from a guy's in his own head maybe or he's got the yips and he's struggling to maybe this is really how it's going to be for this season. I think that, that the struggles are starting to become something that's, you know, expected from Kowasi as far as his ability to shoot from deep. But I think that he's an extremely effective player when he drives towards the basket and finds a lane. And we actually saw that last night. He is good through contact. He knows how to draw a foul. He knows how to finish around the basket. And it would be nice to see him use his athleticism and length to do a little bit more of that, especially considering that he really hasn't knocked down the, the, the three with any sort of consistency. So, you know, it, it's, it's challenging. And you ask, you know, what, what are the, the base of the struggles? I think for a guy like him, it comes down a lot to what's going on between the ears. And he's been open about that, uh, you know, misses start to pile up and then you get into your own head about it. And, and sometimes for certain guys, uh, it's difficult to break yourself out of that slump. And I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if that was applicable to Kowasi, uh, who has been open about, you know, sometimes struggling with, you know, keeping himself mentally engaged in the right ways and not allowing him to self to get himself, you know, worked up about certain things. Uh, so, so to answer your question, do I stop playing him? No, I don't. I think that he's way too valuable to this team. Uh, but I do think that it's time to probably start to reshape the way that he thinks about things offensively uh, and the way that he tries to attack scoring. Yeah. And, and, and to be clear, I was just asking what you would do with him. I wasn't suggesting he should, uh, yeah. or should you, should no, you no, mention no. <laughs> It's funny. You mentioned the message boards and what you're hearing on. I, I think sometime, and maybe this would be like an off season thing, but uh, it'd be pretty fun to get the 24 seven boards, you know, Gator country boards, get a few of these boards and just get some of the great uh, message board clips of the year and, and share them on the show because it's like that message board geniuses Twitter account. That's hilarious because um, you know, there's always some good stuff. And again, like, if, if someone was saying, hey, he needs to go to the bench, I don't think that's an unreasonable thought to have. Again, I would disagree with it. But I think that part of that maybe even comes from that. I think people think him as or people think of him as an offensive weapon that if a shot isn't falling, well, then he's not bringing value. And I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, he is playing well on the defensive end and is bringing length, of course, being six, six or six, seven and, 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 and being long. And um, that's the thing I wanted to ask, ask next. The Gators have had to play a little bit smaller um, recently, uh, whether it be from Alex Fudge's injury. And again, I'm not sure if Fudge is at hundred percent, but um, even if he is, the Gators have settled into having Riley Kugel in the starting lineup. Um, so the Gators are a little bit smaller. Um, especially at those that that four spot. 
what do you what do you think the implications of that have have or what what has that done to the Gators playing small and uh, what did you think of it especially seeing it going against a team like Kentucky that's so big and physical? Yeah, I, in generally speaking, I think I like what it's done for Florida. I, I I believe that the smaller group has allowed them to pay it play at a pace both offensively and defensively that they weren't necessarily achieving consistently early on in the season. Uh, and, and, and the, the reality is, in my opinion, I don't necessarily think that it's a quote unquote small group. Uh, you, you have Kwesi Reeves when he's on the court, that's a six, six, like you said, six, seven guy. Uh, Riley Kugel is a, is a six, four, six, five wing. Will Richard is kind of in that same range. So it's not necessarily a small, small group. Um, and I do like guys like Will Richard's physicality. And I think that that makes up, uh, to a degree for the, for the lack of height that you might expect out of a true four so when you have Richard on the court, I don't know that you're missing as much of that due to his ability to kind of push guys around, which he did a great job of actually against Kentucky. Um, I, I think that the performance was solid defensively in the first half. Uh, Florida limited Kentucky to, I think, 38% from the field before the intermission. Things really started to fall apart uh, after the break. And I don't know if that was a matter of a locker room talk that was like, hey, we're down 11. We really got to get going here in the second half if we want to have a chance and the speed of the game allowed things to kind of get a little sloppy on the defensive end, or if it really did come down, like you said, to Kentucky being a, a, a successful physical basketball team uh, that does a good job of pushing its opponents around, and, and it just got the best of Florida after the break. I'm not 100% sure. The, the area that it is a concern to me, Eric, is, is the rebounding. I think that that is a problem uh, that is made worse by the fact that Florida kind of has to go to this small lineup right now. Uh, Rebounding was a major issue in yesterday's game. Kentucky had 13 offensive rebounds. Uh, second chance points, 15 of their 72 uh, points last night came on second chances. Uh, there were several third chance opportunities throughout yesterday's game. Uh, and that is an area that is not going to improve by continuing uh, to play guys who are undersized for their position. So you have a guy like Will Richard trying to rebound against a Jacob Toppin. I like Jacob Toppin's chances a lot. So uh, it. <laughs> It's, it's, it's a challenging thing, but like Todd Golden says all the time, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And I think that this is the right trade-off for this team to try and generate a little bit more offense earlier on in games. I think that this is necessary. Uh, and so I personally wouldn't, necess I wouldn't change it. I, I, I think that this is a good move for the team, uh, but it certainly comes with its concerns, and there's no denying that at all. Yeah, it's one of those things too. When you when we talk about kind of Florida's defense, um, especially against Kentucky, or like their defense against Kentucky, I thought a lot of times their first shot defense was was pretty good, but those offensive rebounds just and, and those are those backbreakers. If you defend well for twenty five seconds of the shot clock and then you give up an offensive rebound, those can be you know those are backbreakers. So uh, I, I do think there was moments, and even when you look at kind of Florida's overall um, defensive efficiency. Um, I, I, I think that the Gators even defended better than that metric would, would have suggested. Um, and, and again, I, I understand that offensive or defensive rebounding is, is a part of defense, but I think it's worth crediting that their first shot defense was often quite good. They just need to take it to that next level and be able to um, kind of find those defensive rebounds. And, and I'm also interested too now, actually now that we're talking rebounding because it was uh, your story, I believe earlier in the season that pointed out how the Gators are really no longer going after the offensive glass at all, or yeah. some of them are, and instead are getting back in transition defense, of course, transition defense, was an issue earlier in the season and uh, they've been able to shore that up a little bit by simply not going hard after the offensive glass with their threes and fours matching up, get back, don't give up those easy shots in transition. 
I like, you know, I, I have to wonder too, if say the Gators were a little bit, and again, I, I, I understand what you're saying when you're mentioning that the Gators are like, when I said that the Gators are small and you said, well, then, you know, they've got some good length. I still think too, like fudge has great length, but he's not, you know, it's not thick. He's not stocky. And he was getting pushed around by, you know, the Jacob Toppins yeah. of the world. And um, I do think Will Richard brings physicality for sure. But, um, but again, I do think the Gators are a little bit, um, I'll say, I'll say thin lean. And again, it's not that uh, if those players were all playing, you know, one position down, I think it would look, you know, if Riley Kugel's a two, he's got great physicality and, and size. Right. If he's a three, not so much. Will Richard at the three has good size and length and physicality when he's playing four. Uh, not so much. So it's, again, I don't think it's an issue of these players needing to get in the gym more or whatever it is. Um, you know, sure. so, but, but again, I, I, do you think, do you think that the C team would play differently if they were able, if they would say they were bigger, were more able to impose their, themselves on the offensive glass? Do you think that they would have stuck to that strategy a little bit more, or do you think they were going to be destined to this less offensive rebounding and getting back more in transition? No, I, 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 first of all, that was well said. And I, I think that the this offensive rebounding strategy that this team has employed this season is more a byproduct of uh, failures in other areas mm. earlier on. And it, it kind of became a necessity, but I do not think it's the preference. And so to your point, uh, I think that at one thing that we'll have to look for is as the offseason comes and Todd Golden has an opportunity to once again kind of finish reshaping this roster because this will really be the offseason where – he can put his, you know, fingerprints on this team. Uh, I do think that he's going to try and build a roster that is longer, uh, can be more physical at the correct positions, as you as you pointed out, uh, and, and in turn be able to kind of attack the offensive glass more and try and generate more chances. Uh, their preferred system is not what they're doing right now. They're, they are not crashing uh, as many guys as they would typically to the offensive glass. And the reason for that, again, like you said, is to protect themselves in transition. And, and it's worked. So, you know, the, the trade-off has been successful, but I do think that as we progress with, with the Todd Golden era, as we move out of year one and start to prepare for year two, one of the things that I, I would anticipate is recruiting via whether it's a transfer portal or, you know, they now have two 2023 commitments who are six foot 10, seven feet tall, uh, is, is finding that length, uh, being able to really establish the depth of positions that they don't necessarily have power forward being the main one, in my opinion, uh, and then really be able to reestablish the way that they want to attack the offensive glass. And that's sending three guys towards the glass. It's really like two and a half. Uh, you know, you keep, you keep one guy to protect yourself. But to be more aggressive on that end will be a benefit to this team. And it's just not something that they can do right now. But that's certainly not to their, you know, that, that, that's not their preference at all. Yeah, and it's a good time to also remind people that uh, at least the last year San Francisco team played. I'll, I'll call it two true centers on the on the floor at once for long stretches. And again, that's not to suggest because they did that in the WCC that they'd be looking to do that in the SEC. There's a lot of teams that play bigger in the front court in uh, the West Coast Conference. Um, but uh, again, and, and we saw early that uh, that Golden said that he was going to try to play Jatobo next to Castleton. They have tried that out a little bit, not long but uh it's 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 clear that like i think that if we're going back to you know mike white he it was pretty clear he would rather have a six foot five you know guard wing at the at the four um i think like you said it's maybe a little bit more of necessity and the style of play kind of necessitating that um, because of that um of course the gators entering the season thought that they were um, or, you know, had CJ Felder. Um, he's currently away from, from, from basketball. Um, we're not sure what, uh, what 
which uh, if, you, if you'll return, I won't ask for any comments on that from you, Jacob. But um, yeah, it's it's certainly one of those things where I don't know if w- the, the starting lineup, the rotation, the style of play right now is what Golden would have thought it was in September when they're, you know, going through yeah. workouts. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's college basketball. You you adjust, uh, you adjust your lineups, you adjust styles of play. Um, I did uh, I, I did want to get back to uh, we were talking a little bit about Florida's defense and offensive rebounding, um, but kind of an interesting stat. Again, we're on this podcast and, you know, being smarter basketball fans, um, for sure. We're a little bit more of a points per possession podcast. And that was one point one two for Kentucky, which wasn't great for you know the Gators defense but I will say um it was only the second time in SEC play that the Gators have uh, had allowed over 70 points the other game was actually Georgia who kind of hit some desperation heaves at the end of the game to get it up to that number um so you know, I, I kind of mentioned that I thought the Gators first shot defense was was pretty good uh do you feel the same way that their first shot defense was 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 pretty good and it was the offensive rebounding or what did you think of Florida's defensive effort um I thought that the defensive effort in the first half was really strong, especially on that first shot defense. I I do obviously think that they gave up way too many offensive rebounds uh, throughout the entirety of the contest. I was less impressed with Florida's defensive performance in the second half. I thought that they allowed uh, too many easy runs into that mid-range level and even up to the basket. Guys like Jacob Toppin were really successful of driving. Uh, Even Shibway was able to get shots off around the basket that Castleton did a great job contesting. And that is reflected in that two of 14 line. Uh, But, but I do think that in game, unlike games we've seen recently, uh, Florida was a little bit too laxed in giving up, uh, you know, easy high percentage looks that allowed Kentucky to keep the gap the way that it was. And, and, and that says a lot because Florida was so good offensively in the second half and unable to catch up despite outscoring Kentucky. Um, one thing that I want to point out, and I think it's important, is that teams have had offensive rebounding success against Florida, and I think that it, it has the potential to look a little bit disproportionate. Uh, dis- and it needs to be noted, in my opinion, that Florida is an amazing shot-blocking team. They do a great job of, of rejecting shot attempts around the rim. They rank 15th uh, in the nation right now in shot-block percentage. Uh those turn into offensive rebounds. Block shots that go out of bounds are credited to the other team. I believe in the first half yesterday, there were three shots that were actually the byproduct of, of blocks that Kentucky got a second chance on. You're going to mm-hmm. take that all day if you're Todd Golden. And that's not necessarily uh, bad defense. That's good defense. And you yeah. just don't have somebody around there to get to the ball. Um, I do think that that is kind of something that gets uh, – overlooked a little bit because Florida does give up a lot of offensive rebounds and there's no doubt that this is a team that needs help in that department as we start to look towards needs for the offseason that being said though I I do think that credit is due uh just with the team's ability to 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 keep shots away from the hoop and this is especially Castleton who's a premier shot blocker in the country right now uh but the reality is is that does turn into additional offense and so uh I, I do think that Florida needs to be uh, more careful in terms of its ability to prevent true offensive rebounds. But if if you're going to ask Todd Golden, hey, uh, would you continue on the same path you are as far as uh, rejecting shots and, and having those turn into second chance opportunities, the answer is of course yeah. yes. So it, it, I think it's it's a mixed bag, and it kind of depends on the scenario. Yeah, that's that's totally fair, and uh, it's it's one of those things that some different stat services like Synergy, some of these advent, like I, I kind of like how they break it down. Where if you block a shot out of bounds, that is the end of the possession, and then it starts again when they inbound it. Right. And, and again, I, I I understand 
why it needs to be the way it is. And, you know, of course, now that that those efficiency margins are more important than ever with the net. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's certainly something that, um, when talking about the team requires a little bit more context. And that's why we have conversations like this. Um, you kind of alluded, um, if we can talk just recruiting here, right at the end, Alex Condon, I think is the pronunciation. I have one Australian friend and that's how it's said. And it sounds a lot better with the Australian accent flows really nice. Um, so he's a little bit of a, I don't want to say a man of mystery. This is a very heralded uh, athlete in another sport, Australian rules football. Um, but uh, I, so I, I don't know if you've been able to watch much, uh, many clips of him or, or, or a film of him, but, but just really quickly here at the end of the time I have with you. Um, is there anything you can kind of say about that recruitment or anything you know about him as a player? Absolutely. I love this addition for Florida. I have been saying this all over the place. I think that this is the kind of ad uh, that is the, the quintessential floor raiser, if you will. Um, this is a player who, like you just mentioned, is a premier athlete in a different sport, uh, was a projected top 10 pick in Australian rules football, despite basically being a seven footer, uh, extremely talented, extremely athletic, very raw when it comes to basketball. You know, the, the tools are there. The athleticism is there, but he's so new that there's kind of this this room to really shape him. Uh, and so so when he gets to, to Gainesville, I think that Florida has an opportunity to, to craft a player essentially. And, and, and you love to have that when you have a seven footer uh, who really gets to learn from you and play the way that you tell him to. Uh, things I like right now about Alex Condon, uh, very good in transition both ways, just due to that athleticism, uh, a physical player who's not afraid to make contact in the post, which is something that Golden has talked about uh, wanting on his roster. Uh, this is a guy, in my opinion, who does fit the mold of what this team has said it's looking for philosophically. Uh, and again, I, I love the potential. I think that this is a kind of the, the kind of addition where you don't necessarily expect much out of him in his first season at Florida. Uh, probably a guy who, who sees a lot more time on the bench than he does on the floor. But that being said, I think putting him into a college basketball environment, uh, getting him with college coaching, who knows how they want to develop him, getting him around college basketball, Division One college basketball players and practices will be beneficial. And then you have a guy who's 230 pounds, seven feet tall, right out of the box, learning and growing within your system. So uh, if these are the kinds of players that Todd Golden is going to bring in as the floor of the scholarships here, uh, that is a really positive sign. So I think that this is the kind of ad uh, where Florida will be able to build around. Now you go and look towards the transfer portal. I don't think Florida does much more in the 23 class as far as high school recruiting goes, but now you have a guy like Thomas Hawk, who is six foot ten. Uh, also about 230 pounds. You have Alex Condon, who's six foot 11 and a half in shoes, was where he measured in during his official visit a couple weeks ago at Florida, 230 pounds. Uh, I, I love this ad. I think that this is the kind of thing to go back to our earlier conversation, uh, where you are able to start to protect yourself more in areas like the offensive glass, the defensive glass, the ability to be uh, a, a more of a matchup threat defensively with guys who you want to, you want to put a six foot 10 guy against Jacob Toppin. You don't want to put Will Richard out mm -hmm. there and you want to let well, Richard played the three, which is, like you said, a, a, something that's be more advantageous uh, given his size and physicality at that position. Um, I love it. I think that this is the kind of thing where um, if we see more of this and this, this international pipeline can really start to become even further established at Florida, uh, it, it really would be to the benefit of the team. Uh, and I think that this is the first step towards that. So, so great ad, uh, promising player with a lot of potential obvious project situation though so I, I don't want people to come away with this thinking he's <laughs> going to contribute right away that's not what I'm saying but I am I do think that this is the kind of ad uh, that raises the caliber of your program it raises the floor of your program 
Uh, and he's somebody who I do think can be a multi-year contributor if everything works out. Do you know much about Australian rules football? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So when I, when I was at, when I was in high school, so this is, you know, 10 years ago, but I, uh, I, uh, I, that was like one of those like niche sports that I once saw in the middle of the night and like started to, to love it and cheer on my West coast Eagles. So I, I love Australian football. Um, and for those people who don't know and, or don't know anything about it, like it's like rugby, I uh, played on a cricket pitch. So it's oval, but unlike rugby or American football, there's no, you know, line of scrimmage or you it's, there's not an offside like rugby. So it's not like all players are on one side of the line. Everyone it's, it's all scrambled and you can advance the ball by kicking it. And uh, so you, so it's like rugby with, you know, a forward pass, but because it's not precision, you boot that ball high in the air and you go have guys like that are, you know, six foot 11 athletes go and sprint and run and grab it. And it is incredibly physical again, because there's players, it's, it's kind of, you know, controlled chaos. So like pretty much the only rule is you can't hit someone in the back, um, which is sometimes hard to do because there's players everywhere on the, on the pitch. So it's a very physical game. So that's one thing too, if anyone's looking at him and thinking like, Oh, here's a, you know, six foot 11, 176 pound guy. He's going to be soft. Um, That is not the case Um, from the clips. I did see of him playing basketball and the film of watching him play, play Aussie rules. um, Physicality is, is, is not going to be an issue. So it's an interesting one. I'm glad you mentioned the pipeline because um, Hey, St. Mary's just had a big win last night um, over Gonzaga. They've played the Australian recruiting very, very well. Um, We're seeing a lot of players in the NBA from Australia um, Luke Travers at, you know, Perth just won a big game for, uh, to send them to the NBL finals also last night in Australian basketball. Like there's great basketball there. And I'm not saying that this is a take just to nurture those relationships, but I do think to some extent, um, you, you know, you take a player like this, that's not as heralded, um, necessarily as, as some of these other top Australian towns, but you build that relationship with the NBA global Academy in Australia. And, and maybe you get the next, you know, Dyson Daniels or um, Luke Travers or, you know, whoever these kind of top players are. Um, so that's, that's going to be interesting there. Just one last question before we get, get, get you out of here. Um, I know you're, uh, you know, got to get on with your Sunday, but I, I really think that you are the best in the game right now when it comes to Florida basketball recruiting. Um, I, that's why most people listening to this will follow you for sure. I know that you're, you're first on, on a lot of things. Um, what is your process when it comes to covering recruiting and, uh, and you know, how do you become, I, I will say the best in the game right now for Florida basketball recruiting? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. I, I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, I, I think it's like anything, it's, it's all about, uh, you know, establishing connections. And I really enjoy uh, following the recruitments of these kids who are so talented uh, and, and put a lot of work in. And I think for me, uh, the reason I love covering recruiting so much is because it really is about those guys uh, who who are trying to make make their dreams come true and uh, get to the college level. And like I tell a lot of the, the recruits who I have a chance to have a conversation with, it, to me, it's about uh, telling their story. And so I, I'm uh, always glad to be able to do that. Uh, love the opportunity to be able to cover that aspect of, of all sports. You know, we do it at 24-7 sports with, with the football side as well. Uh, and I view both the same way. I, my, my process is really to just establish connections with those people. And, uh, you know, here we are. But but yeah, I, I appreciate that. That was that was kind of you. Well, I just I, I feel like you definitely filled uh, a, a niche, I'll say. And you, again, cover recruiting in a way that uh, no one else does. And you're first on most things. So if you are, um, you know, listening to this, you absolutely need to, and you don't already follow Jacob's work, you certainly need to. And so this would be a good good time for you to say, uh, tell everyone, Jacob, uh, where they can follow you on Twitter and, and socials and where they can follow your work. 
Yeah, it's uh, pretty easy. My, my Twitter is just my name, Jacob Rudner. I uh, would appreciate the follow if, if anybody is so inclined. And then obviously, if you want to read uh, more of what we have to offer as far as our basketball coverage, even on the recruiting side, uh, that'll be over at swamp247.com. Uh, we got the message board over there where I'm sharing basketball recruiting information all the time. Uh, plus, we have you know our content that goes up that, that Eric so kindly mentioned. And uh, yeah, we would appreciate it if you if you jumped over there. Obviously, if you subscribe, you'll get the full experience. And uh, yeah, that, those are the places that you can find me right now. All right. Thank you so much um, for coming on. I will let you get on with your Sunday. Thank you for working within my schedule. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again uh, later in the season with, you know, hopefully a deep postseason run for, for, for the Gators to discuss. So thank you so much. Looking forward to it, Eric. Thank you. All right. And now I am going to welcome in a uh, one of Jacob's co-workers here, um, a person who has been on this podcast, perhaps more than anyone else as a guest. It's Graham Hall. How are you doing, Graham? Hey, Eric, thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay? I got you. Excellent. Excellent. i uh honored to be on. Jacob does a fantastic job. I hope everyone out there follows him, checks out his coverage. He, he's been crushing it for recruiting. As you mentioned right before I hopped on here, it's something that I think this market has been missing, basketball recruiting coverage, consistent. And, you know, you've done a great job as well, especially with the analysis of what each move means but you know Jacob is definitely in the, the year that he's been here he's definitely jumped in to a very similar role like that and I'm, I'm really impressed with what he does and I'm lucky to work with him so thanks for having him on and increasing his uh profile for everyone out there in Florida the Florida fan base that maybe hasn't heard too much of him or followed him just haven't been here for a year but he's definitely someone you should be following yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're certainly someone who uh, should be following him. So uh, uh, Graham is uh, currently on the road and I made it happen because I truly want to talk to Graham. So I I, uh, I, I was joking earlier, Graham, about uh, with Jacob, just because I, I, I half jokingly said that Neil always does me dirty because um, he always has you on when I'm away. Um, when, so I don't ever get to talk to you on the podcast. And uh, that was the other one where earlier in the season, we were like, Oh, we have to have Jacob on. And then Neil booked him for when, you know, I, I was not going to be there so that he could have someone to host it with. So um, I said that, you know, when I'm hosting one, I'm getting both Jacob and, and Graham on the show. So that's why we're doing the, the, the two parter here. So uh, uh, anyways, I, uh, I'll, I'll keep it light with you to start. I mean, I realize that you've been on the show many times and we get, you know, right into the nitty gritty and, and, and talk about basketball, but um obviously people listening to this will, will know you from, from, from years of covering both football and basketball. Um, I thought this would maybe just be a good chance to just ask you like, where are you from originally and how did you get into writing for uh, now about the Gators? I, I really appreciate that. Honestly, I've actually lived in Gainesville my entire life. I'm one of the blessed ones that people love to call ACRs, Alachua County residents. I was lucky enough to grow up in Gainesville, go to Gainesville high school. And then I, my luck continued. I don't know what I did in a previous life to deserve all this, but I fortunately got into the University of Florida when I thought for a long time that I was headed for either UCF or USF, stayed in Gainesville, got to go to Florida, initially thought I was going to be in psychology. Um, yeah, I was a little bit ill-advised back then. And after a year and a half of doing psychology, I realized this wasn't for me. I really liked writing. I started working for an on-campus newspaper at UF called the Odyssey. I think some people may have heard of that. A lot of, it works especially with Greek communities, um, frats and sororities and gives people who work, who are in fraternities and sororities a chance to work for them and 
you know, get some clips. And I thought that was really appealing to me. And I started doing that for six months. And then I um, had an opportunity to apply for the independent Florida alligator. I got lucky enough to be hired as a copy editor, which was the best case that scenario for me. I didn't have to instantly, you know, to use your term, mm -hmm. jump into the nitty gritty and kind of trial by fire, learn my way. I was able to read other people's work, edit, uh, learn, how, see how they, you know, did things, pick their brains. And I think that really helped me doing that for the first six months so that when I started reporting um, all the way back in, wow, man, October 2014 now. So uh, maybe 2013, it, it all runs together. But <laughs> It, it has been a, a wild ride. We've seen some crazy stuff on this beat. I'm lucky to still be in Gainesville, like I said, with my family right by. And we've seen some crazy stuff, you know, four football, four football <laughs> coaches later. And, and Billy Donovan was still in Gainesville when I started covering the team. So that should really tell you how far, you know, how much has changed. Let's see that over the last decade. So. Yeah, I appreciate. Might have just uh, might have just lost you for a second there, but again, I'm I'm glad I asked the question. I'm glad I heard uh, a little bit about that. Sorry, I didn't know you were from this team. And yeah, I was, sorry, I might have might have just lost you there for a second, but whatever. Neil might have to edit this out, but um, I got you now. So um, I'm glad I asked the question and hearing a little bit about your your story. I didn't know you were from Gainesville, and uh, I knew you'd been at it for a while. Um, didn't know it was still like whoa, and Billy Donovan was was there. But uh, so I was actually going to initially ask this question just about the one previous coaching staff um, with Mike White. Um, if you have any Billy Donovan, it you know, stories or insight as, as, as well, you're welcome to, to mention it. But um, of course the Gators have a new coaching staff. Um, you get to be around the team um, as, as much as anyone who covers the team. So what are, what are the differences in, in, in kind of vibes feel um, maybe anything about the operations that you see as uh, as different from, you know, the Mike White coaching staff to, uh, to now and Todd Golden era. under the Mike White coaching staff. Under this coaching staff, we've already been able to see more, more practice opportunities.
So as one of the longer serving uh, members of the media um, that are around still, uh, you've been around. Well, I didn't actually even realize at first that you were there for that last little tail end of, of, of Billy Donovan. So maybe you'll have insight there. But um, I was really just, originally just going to ask if there's any kind of noticeable differences, um, whether it be in press conferences or just being around the team, around the facility um, from the previous coaching regime to now the, the Todd Golden one. Um, is, is there anything kind of like vibe wise that's uh, that's that's noticeably different? Well, first, I got to say that asking Billy Donovan a question while he was at Florida in that final year is a career milestone bucket list <laughs> check check mark, you know, for me, because I never thought I would get to experience anything like that. And in the years since, I've got to talk to Tom Izzo, you know, John Cow, you name it, a whole list of guys I never thought I'd have a chance to interview. So it's been absolutely incredible. For the Mike White era, I think part of what was so tough to I think get an understanding of how things ran in practice was how closed off everything was for that previous administration you really didn't have a chance to view many practices initially in the first couple of years Mike White his coaching staff would attempt to hold media sessions and film review studies for the media to get a better understanding of what they're seeing what they're coaching what they're attempting to do and also to show the media, in my mind, a little a little glimpse of how little they do actually know about the game, right? That <laughs> dissipated after they realized it wasn't helping everybody um, after the first five, you know, five times they did it or whatever. From the early Mike White era, we didn't really get to see too much when it came to practice. I only got to watch, I think, a couple practices. So based on my comparisons to that, and the now 17, 18 practices of the Todd Golden era that I have witnessed, the vibe around around this current coaching staff, I would say is a little bit more relaxed. I think part of that is how confident they are in their system, the numbers, what they're running. And I think that there's a little bit less conviction in making sure that they are, are right. They're very, I think, open to interpreting and adapting and changing what they thought was correct, whether it's their rotations, whether it was the practice regimen, whether it was, I mean, a play that they thought would work well against the other team. This is a team that a coaching staff that consistently reevaluates what they are doing and whether it's the right thing. And I'm not saying that the previous regime didn't do that. I want to make sure that that's very clear. Obviously they, they self-reflected all the time and assessed, their, their you know shortcomings what they were doing well how they could do things better you name it but from this coaching staff that's something that stand out a little stood out a little bit more to me immediately the other thing is and I've said this before elsewhere is that when you would watch a Mike White coached practice often it was you know 90 percent hearing Mike White talking during the game and, and that's no surprise I assume that that's pretty similar at a lot of places the head coach coaches you know the team and they used get used to hearing one familiar voice so that there aren't all these muddled messages and potentially contradictory statements when you have every coach involved in the process. This coaching staff, I think, has really done a good job at assigning their roles and following their roles really, really well so you know who is responsible for what. For example, Todd Golden's voice during practice is, is when I've heard it, has hardly been a, a booming, commanding presence. More often, when you go watch a two-hour UF men's practice, you're going to hear Kevin 
the talk in abundance, maybe more than anyone else out there. Um, and I think that part of what attracted him to rejoining Todd Golden's staff was that this is a coach who can be hands-off at times and allow his assistant coaches to lead the way. I, I think it's a very, I think it's an impressive way to lead as a head coach because so often, especially in college football, you're used to when someone gets a big job, they're going to be the one who quote unquote calls plays because that's what's making them their money. Having a head coach that doesn't feel the need to change what they've done, still involve their assistants, trust them and not be stressed out and anxious that whether they're doing things the right way, that's something that stands out to me a lot. And it's something that Todd Golden and his coaching staff have really done a good job of in year one is cohabitating, really having a lot of responsibility for each coach. And I think that that deserves some credit for the head man in charge there to allow that to happen necessarily. That's great stuff. That's, that's the insight you're not getting from anyone else other than, other than Graham Hall. So that's, that's wonderful. Um, uh, one last thing, a little bit about just your, uh, uh, your your process as as a media member um, before we get into this team. Um, I've just always noticed ever since I you know first knew knew of your work really before even getting to you know meet you and 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 get to know you. I just always thought you asked some of the best conference or the best questions at press conferences. And then I even think like there was a couple of years or I'll, I'll say a couple of years ago where. Um, the beat was, was, was pretty thin. Uh, there's a few more guys on, on the beat now than there was a couple of years ago. So um, oftentimes you were one of the only guys in there that, you know, were, were at, were there to ask um, especially tough questions and not to say that you were always asking tough questions, but when there were tough questions to be asked, it often uh, fell on you as, as one of the only kind of media members that were, that were there. So how much of that is like natural ability that you have to come up with questions and, and ask them in a way that's not um, going to be, you know, disrespectful or anything like that. And how much of that is, is, you know, experience what you learned at school, stuff like that. Uh, honestly, I, I got to say that was one of the nicer things I've ever heard. I, I, I don't, I'm not certain I deserve all of those compliments. Um, I do think you describe the situation on the beat accurately uh, as Florida missed the NCAA tournament, dealt with some struggles. I think the amount of people showing up to ask those questions and the interest waned a little bit and that, you know, there were still tough questions to ask, but there were less people to ask them. I think one of the things I always have strive to do is I'm always thinking of what I want to ask. I don't just try and get into the room, show up at a, at a press conference and figure it out right then. Cause that's kind of a recipe for disaster in my mind. If, if you're not prepared with at least a little bit of an idea of what you want to ask, you're, you're not starting off on the right foot. I'll say that. And then when you get in there, I think that this is something people, especially outside of, of reporting, maybe don't fully understand, but you do have to find a very, tactful way and often it's in your tone to ask tough questions without coming across as this absolute jerk who maybe is even taking some thrill at putting the coach on the spot or presenting this criticism sometimes disguised as a question to the head coach that's a really really easy way of getting yourself in some long-term trouble whether it's not having coaches players want to talk to you as much because they think that they have an idea of your opinion or it's getting the impression, you know, externally that you are not objective about the situation. You already have a preconceived idea of what it is, positive or negative. I think that that's something that you always, you want to try and avoid that as much as possible. People thinking that they have 
determine where you stand because my opinion of something is kind of like Todd Golden's always ever changing. I, I don't want to come out here and give a grand proclamation in my take. So I always try and think about my tone, my questions. And if I have to ask a tough question, I, I try and do it in a respectful way that I understand that maybe my subject isn't going to want to address this, but they have opened themselves up to the time. I should take the opportunity to ask the important questions in that time. And while doing that, I need to make sure that I'm not coming across as someone who is gleeful or not understanding, understanding the human emotion of, of asking tough questions, showing that compassion that you feel for someone who's possibly going through something. If you're asking a tough question, that's a huge way that can help you ask tough questions without seeming like you're, you know, living to do that. I think you're going to only have to ask a couple of those during a season, fortunately, and most of the other stuff that you talk about is going to be hopefully how well someone's doing, how can someone improve their improvement, their role, their arrival, a lot of great stuff. But when it comes down to asking the, you know, the hard questions, I do think you have to be very tactful with it because it, it can be a landmine if you step up and often assert your opinion in the question. That's the last thing I'll say on that. Um, you know, coaches and players are making themselves available to present their opinions to you and you ask them, they, they aren't showing up to hear what I think, what, what anyone else in the, in the media thinks about how they're doing. They just want, you can sometimes say, I, I think this, but even then you're opening yourself up to being told you're incorrect. And if you can't handle being told you're incorrect, you're not going to make it in this in the first place. So that's, I think, probably a roundabout answer a way of saying just, you know, be a regular person. Understand that these are people. You shouldn't be gotching anyone. You shouldn't be trying to look like you're enjoying asking tough stuff to people that are going to maybe upset them or make it even difficult for them to answer a question. You don't want to make them think that you're the one who deserves the blame for doing that to them. So I know I've rambled a little bit for this answer, but yeah, just be a regular person when you go ask questions and be confident and do your work and prepare a little bit. And, you know, you asked me one more thing, if I learned it in school, honestly, I would say that's one of the biggest things lacking, not to criticize the University of Florida or really any journalism program, but I don't think a lot of people, especially, especially at UF, I'll say that, I don't think a lot of people exit college having been thoroughly educated on the art per se of mm -hmm. asking a question. A lot of people think that they can do it. A lot of people try and do it and tell us how to do it, especially, but it is a lot more difficult to do than I think a lot of people think because you're not taught until you actually go out there and experience what is going to be the, the ripple effects per se of asking a question in this way, what is going to be, what's going to be the repercussions that follows you when you have to ask this subject something two days later and they potentially hold the way you said a question against you in a sense. So a lot of it is trial and error, um, but I do think that a lot of people who come out of journalism school initially are not as educated. It, it takes getting out there and doing it and sometimes learning from your mistakes, unfortunately. Yeah, and I mean, there's been some fairly highly publicized ones uh, in recent years, and then there was actually just one this last week. I don't want to say the coach's name, but you might see this on Twitter, but a very you know veteran coach, maybe known for firing back at particularly student reporters, got a question that I thought was pretty valid from a from a student reporter and 
went after him. And luckily there was a lot of media members that, that, you know, went to the student's aid and said like, Hey, this was a fair question that was asked respectfully, but you know, like there's a chance, especially as, as a student, you know, if you ask a question to, you know, especially a coach that's been doing it for a while, they might uh, snap back a little bit. So um, I can only imagine how terrifying that would be for some of these um, at certain schools where they ask guys that are current or future hall of fame coaches, a, a tough question. And uh, yeah, anyways, I, I, every time that happens, I, I feel for those, those guys and, and, and girls who ask those questions, but um, hope that that is experience that uh, they'll learn. And of course, sometimes people do ask actually bad questions and they learn that way too, but uh, I'm glad. I, I I don't know. I, I I hope you don't have any stories like that. But at least now at the at the point too. I mean, you're one of the guys that's been around for uh, quite a while now, and 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 earned a lot of respect too. And I think that that probably would 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 help when you have to ask a question as well that everyone knows. You know, <laughs> you've got a long track record of not trying to uh, elicit a, a a fiery response. But anyway, I I just love you've been on the show so many times, and um, there's been very few questions about you know your craft or or where you came from. So I want to make sure to to ask you a couple of those. Um, I am now actually going to ask ask you a hard question, and hey, maybe part of the reason I wanted to ask you about your question process was because. Um, I, I, I think it's hard to ask really good questions and people are probably seeing that with my, uh, with my current, uh, you know, hosting duties now that, now that Neil is gone, but I'm going to ask you a tough question, Graham. And, um, I, I think that, you know, me and Jacob went into a little bit more specifics about the game against Kentucky. So I, I think we're going to talk just a bit, a little bit more, uh, generally, and, and maybe we'll look forward to Alabama. But, uh, one of the issues with this team has of course been that the offense has, has, has not been, uh, has not had positive results. Um, one of the things that has um, kind of been echoed a little bit or mentioned a few times was that like, oh, you know, we need to make shots. Um, so the question I have for you that might be a difficult one to answer, how much of this, uh, how much of the offensive struggles are um, maybe the offense, like, you know, there's systematic problems with what the Gators are doing and how much of the problem is the Gators are just not making shots? Well, I think it's probably an interesting, and that was a great question. It was probably an interesting, I guess you could say, circle chart of percentages of blame if we're doing that in a sense here. I think that that question in general is is prefaced kind of saying if, you know, given Florida's personnel, given who Florida has available to, to, to play, a lot of guys who are offensively have had, I think, up and down stretches throughout their time at Florida, whether it's Myron Jones, Kowasi Reeves, even Kyle Lofton, as he was dealing with injury early, Trey Bonham especially. I, I hate to use the term streaky because it's kind of one of those, you know, buzzword cliches in a sense because everyone goes through stretches, everyone gets hot, everyone feels a little bit cold. That happens all the time. When I think, you know, this is just an offensively limited team in my mind. Let me say that mm. first and foremost. I was of the opinion that Tyree Appleby was a little bit underrated last year, particularly because the conversation centering around him was – kind of missing the point he was he was playing out of position right and so he was being asked to do a lot and so I think that was kind of an asterisk often in the conversation with Tyree Appleby that this team could really use someone who can create their own shot off the dribble I'm, I'm sure that you can attest to that I'm sure you've written about it time and time again this team is missing someone who can just go get a bucket and they've started to get that a little bit more as Kyle Lofton has become uh, healthy and and gotten more confident within the offense but Trey Bonham I think that going from Tyree Appleby to Trey Bonham is a little bit of a decrease. Kowasi Reeves has not taken the steps that we assumed that he would take. Riley Kugel is, is just getting confidence as a shooter, but really what are the expectations for a freshman 
who arrived late in August to be leading, you know, offensively, that's not something I really want to even say should be an expectation right now. So for Florida to be in the situation where they have to play him, I think it speaks to how poor the rest of the offensive production is from guys who could be playing at his position. Now, this is where I think it, it gets a little bit potentially frustrating. The narrative last year was that Florida was a bad offensive team under Mike White. I consistently would say that maybe it's not as bad as people are saying. And if you were of the belief that it was horrendous last year, you're probably extremely disappointed Mm -hmm. this year because you haven't seen a significant level of improvement that many people were expecting to happen. I think that there should be a correction in how bad offensively Florida was last year. Considering how many injuries they dealt with, for Florida to finish top 150 in uh, you know just offense, that's not a failure in my mind. I, I think that absolutely it was you know they were hamstring by numerous injuries, had no front court depth by the end of the season, and were playing a guy uh, shooting guard at the point guard spot, really an undersized combo guard at the point guard spot. And so, if you had low expectations about last year, I think you're going to be a little bit more disappointed this year than most people are. I think that a big part of it is just not knocking down shots. If you watch a lot of those games, Florida is getting clean looks, open looks, high percentage looks. I'm not talking about the 19-foot pull-up, one-foot jumpers that we've seen Kowasi Reeves take. I'm, I'm talking about Myron Jones, Riley Kugel. Those guys are getting open shots from the corner, from the wing. Their teammates are finding them. Florida makes the extra pass, I think, efficiently. They often are just not knocking down shots. Now, is that unlucky? I would argue it's not as unlucky as Florida's coaching staff has made it seem. Mm. I think there's a part of it that they're not knocking down shots. Possibly, yeah, because that's unlucky, but also because they're not fantastic shooters. I think that with Kowasi Reeves, there are still some things that he needs to work out from a mechanical standpoint of getting into his jump shot. And and that's all off-season stuff. They can't really do anything about that right now. Like I said with Kugel, what are the expectations for a freshman? They should be very little. He's out. He's exceeding them in my mind. Myron Jones, you've seen what he can do. I thought that the two looks he had in the final minute of last night's game were both two good looks in a way. I mean, I, I think that he would have would have liked those, and he makes one of two of them. I mean, that's really really tough to shoot over forty percent from three at the college basketball level. There aren't many many guys doing that, and the guys that are doing that, they aren't a, a ton of players playing thirty plus minutes a night. If they are, they're one of the best players in the nation in my mind. I, I think that for Florida. If they can hit one, two more shots, we're having an entirely different conversation because their first three SEC losses were a combined seven points. I mean, that's you're talking three shots right there, and we're sitting here, them going into this game with potentially one, two SEC losses. So I think I understand the frustration from Florida's coaching staff. I understand that when you're a player, you want to just believe, yeah, if these shots just fall, I'll be okay, because that keeps your confidence high, makes it so that you actually keep going through it. But I don't really fully believe that it's just totally unlucky. I think part of what you're seeing is that there are some offensively limited players right now on this roster, and maybe Florida needs to adjust the amount of three-percentage looks they're giving some of those guys to have some more high-percentage shots. I mean, if Kwasi Reeves took away some of his three-pointers and just had straight-line drives to the basket where he could attempt to get, you know, pick up a foul and get to the line, that would, I think, do a lot more for Florida's offense right now than what we've seen over this recent stretch. And I hate to single him out because he's an underclassman with significant potential, I believe, six foot six, 
the synergy ratings, as we were talking about last time I was on here, say that he's a really improved defender. His length allows you to have an, kind of an extra rebounder on the floor. I mean, six six guys play play the four spot all the time. So, but his shooting, <clears throat> I don't think they can keep telling him it's just unlucky. There are some things he's going to need to continue working on. And right now, if he wants to impact the game, there's going to, I think, needs to be a change in terms of how his offensive approach right now, because as he puts up shots, it's lowering Florida's three-point overall shooting percentage, and it's creating, I, I think, this narrative that, that Florida is just missing too many shots. No, they should take a few less shots and give those looks to their high-percentage shooters, and if they don't go down, um, I think you can just live with that and then say what we're saying right now, that shots just need to fall at a higher rate, and they're all clean licks, looks, because Right now, there's, I think, a little cleanup that needs to happen before you can fully uh, testify to that. Well, something that we I did talk about with Jacob because I saw that he tweeted it last night and um, I th- thought it was worth talking about was the fact that, you know, Kwesi Reeves has, by a fairly considerable margin, the most three-point attempts on the team. So, um, you know, when someone's taking that many ch- attempts, I th- like, like you said, you didn't want to single him out because he's, you know, still a young player, but it's also, you know, when he's taking the amount of three-pointers he is, I think it's fair to talk about his three-point shot um which is unfortunately not um, not falling you know i i uh i thought uh i thought before the season he'd be quite a volume guy so i didn't think he'd be like the best percentage shooter on the team but uh as i mentioned earlier with jacob he's now shooting 15 percent from three um in conference play which uh i would have never guessed um particularly with the volume he's getting so um that'll be something to monitor a player whose shot is not always falling but is still somehow very effective i shouldn't say somehow um i would have been shocked in the offseason season though if you would have told me that Myron Jones uh was not shooting the ball at a super high clip but is still a very very effective player you know I I don't know if I would have believed you but but here we are he's playing great defensively he's showing playmaking that like quite frankly I don't think we saw at all last season um you of course were covering the team last year you're covering the team now I I know that Myron Jones was injured for you know nagging injuries last season which was a frustration for sure but you know like what 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 has caused this kind of 180 for 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 Myron Jones I think it's a combination of experience absolutely I think the guy is is healthy he's understanding that he's approaching the end of his college basketball career and he's looking to make the NCAA tournament for the first time you know over the summer you know Jacob and I were driving back from Knoxville we put on the latest episode of the Midnight Domino podcast featuring mm-hmm. Myron Jones and his former teammate from Penn State, his name, unfortunately, John, John something. <clears throat> and, you know, John had just gone through the pre-draft process and it, it sounded like it hadn't gone as well for him as he would have liked. And I remember Jacob and I were listening to this episode. All he kept saying to Myron is, you got you to gotta make sure that you hit shots. You got to make sure that you get to the combine, do whatever you can to get to the combine. And between the understanding it's his last year at Florida, the NCAA tournament, and I think finally getting a little bit of a leash because when you're viewed just through that lens with blinders as a shooter, if you don't hit shots, <clears throat> the narrative is going to be that you're not contributing well. And I don't blame people for for looking like that because we're just becoming, I think, very comfortable as a community putting some stock into defensive ratings. I mean, you mm-hmm. and I can both understand that that's pretty. It's pretty novel concept in a way. Over the last twenty years, you, you've never really had people you know quantifying that at the rate that we're seeing right now right so I think for a guy like Myron Jones no one ever believed that he was a 
you know, by the numbers, a good defender. I think you're finally starting to believe that the guy understands positioning, where to go, communication. And while he doesn't have the most active hands, I think that you're just the basketball IQ on the defensive end is just allowing him to make plays at a, at a high rate. And then, you know, I, I, this will kind of come full circle. The Tyree Appleby not being in the right position last year, that was because there was a little bit of maybe naivete, but there was a, a lot of optimism that Myron Jones, who had not just been a shooting guard at Penn State, he had been a combo guard, really. He had played a lot of the point, played on ball, helped to bring the ball up the court, set up the offense. There was belief that he could be Florida's starting point guard last year. That did not happen. Florida pivoted, went to Tyree Appleby. Myron Jones was, you know, at the two guard before he broke that finger there against USF. The guy was, I think, unfairly said that he he couldn't be a point guard initially too early. There was a, it wasn't really a full process allowing him to do that. And obviously he has some limitations, especially I think a little athleticism getting to the rim as a point guard. You know, we've only seen him dunk, I think, one or two times. It's been, a, it's been a while since I remember seeing it. But all that said, everything you've seen over the last month in conference play, I think, proves that the guy has point guard senses. Even if he's lacking maybe the skill set of true point guards at the next level, the athleticism, his intelligence with the offense, his carefulness of each possession, his passing. I mean, he's not a flashy passer, but he makes smart passes, quick passes. He's a confident passer. You, you see him, I think, throw those little floaters over the top of the coverage that, you know, only his guy can go up and get. And when someone's sealing him under the basket, it's an easy bucket when someone makes that pass effectively. And you're seeing Myron Jones absolutely do that for Florida. I think before heading into the Tennessee game, he had 27 assists and only four or five turnovers in conference play. I mean, if you're averaging near a five to one turnover ratio in conference play, you're doing something really, really well in my mind. I think that Myron Jones, give him a whole lot of credit for showing that he can contribute because there were people, especially on our message board, I love them, but, you know, game-by-game results aren't always indicative of someone's capabilities. And when Myron was struggling earlier this season, there were people saying that he should never come off the bench. And and now, as Florida heads into a very critical month, he is clearly a critical component of this team's success right now, Eric. Oh, yeah, and I mean, hey, like, let's, you you know, you can put my name into the the category. I, I mean, I didn't think he should never come off the bench, um, but I was someone, you know, before the season who I certainly didn't think he was going to start, and I didn't think he was going to be the first or maybe even second guard off the bench. So I, hey, I'm I'm. This is one of those ones like you're um, not you alone. Mentioned... You're, you're not yeah. alone. When and we, I think it... we said he'd be a ten minutes a night guy. And... Yeah. And it's one of those things, you know, you mentioned that you don't, uh, when, when I ask you about asking hard questions that you're like, Hey, I don't take any satisfaction in this. You know, I didn't take any satisfaction about saying that I was questionable about Myron Jones ability to play high minutes in the sec. And I'm happy to be wrong on that one. Like that's, those, are, those are things I'm, I'm happy to be, to be wrong about. So it's great to see him, um, playing much better basketball. Um, mentioning the, the rotation, let's actually talk about Florida's transfers, um, as a whole, because at this point of the season, the rotation is like pretty, pretty set. Um, so when it comes to transfers, like Will Richard and Kyle Lofton are unquestioned starters. Um, Fudge is like, I'll say the second or third front court piece. It's, I, I don't know how much, you know, due to the current or the, the, the injury, if he's going to be back starting or if nothing else, he's the first front court player off the bench. Um, Bonham is turning into a bit of a seldom used player, like change tempo. Um, 
maybe catch fire. So uh, we, we know what these transfers kind of are in the eyes of, of the staff and how they're being used. So uh, what were your perceptions of these players before the season and were you proven right or, or wrong and, and have been surprised? I think I would say I was pretty spot on on two of the transfers. If I had to go back and say, I thought that Kyle Lawson was a very crafty point guard. I didn't think he was the most athletic guy. I thought that he had a great mid-range jumper, which when I went back and watched that St. Bonaventure, you know, the highlights of him, I was surprised at how often he would be happy and content with, you know, taking an 18-foot pull-up jumper, but he's got a great shot. I like his form. I think he was a little bit undersold as a three-point shooter. I hoped initially that he'd be able to shoot around 30% from three-point range. That's right around where he is. I mean, that's, that's effective for him. That one, I think that because we had so much footage of him, that led to, I think, why people were able to predict what would happen if you just took him out of a program like St. Bonaventure, a program that had made some runs to the NCAA tournament and insert him on a Florida team, what could happen to that team? Will Richard, I was not correct on. I <laughs> completely underestimated Will Richard. I'll come out and say it. I did not think that this is a guy who had potential NBA size, an NBA shot. I am a little bit iffy still on where he is as a defender. This is me acknowledging how sometimes how little I know I've, I've looked at the numbers I've, I've watched the games I really don't get the sense that Will Richard is only an average defender maybe that's something that part of his game that needs to continue to improve but the perception right now is that defensively that's something that's holding him back from being a, a full package right now but if you had told me Eric in August that Will Richard would be in my in my opinion right now Florida's best three-point shooter I would have probably said no way man it's Myron Jones or I mean, maybe even Trey Bonham or Riley Kugel. Will Richard is the best shooter on this team, in my mind. When he gets going early, I think you can see what it can do for Florida. He's a great transition player. He can defend one through five. Really, I, I think that, you know, they'd like to see him even be a little bit more aggressive cutting to the basket because they've seen it in practice how good he is. Part of me steeps, it still keeps coming back to what it was like in training camp. I mean, that was a guy who suffered, suffered a knee injury on the very first game. Uh, on the very first practice of preseason camp, he slipped on a wet spot on the court, and Florida was, you know, you know what that's like, man. They were mm. they were not happy about that. There were a few trainers who received a little bit of a message uh. after that. Then after they go to Portland, he gets off the plane, and the knee kind of buckles up on him. It's a little bit of tendonitis here. They rest him for two games. I get the sense that he's he's fully healthy and able to compete but maybe that's limiting how much he's cutting how aggressive he's playing at times but they clearly need him to play out there um, as much as possible when it ca came to Trey Bonham I'm gonna go ahead and I I was right about Trey Bonham and initially I thought I was wrong because he was playing pretty well there for a stretch over the last month really up until this Texas A&M game and at the time I was ready to offer a mea culpa because I had been saying that they took an undersized guard, which is something that is is kind of dying off right now. And I don't know if Todd Golden thought that he was getting a, a Zakai Ziegler, you know, test in a way. But Trey Bonham, when, when he's off, he, he really is off. And he's a confident shooter. I mean, you've seen him pull up from 25, 26 feet, even when his shot isn't falling. Try and find that. He drives to the rim, he, you know, picks up contact, just a little bit undersized. And when he's off, he really is detrimental to Florida's offense. And that's kind of a little bit what I expected. Um, but when it comes to their transfer class, I'll throw one more in here. I also, and not to criticize Todd Golden, but I think as people have seen the last couple of years, 
with the transfer portal, with the pandemic, I mean, where you have 17-year-olds against 24-year-olds, <laughs> a massive disparity. When you take overseas players late in the process or you take additional freshmen, in my mind, no offense, that's kind of lowering a team's competitive chances in mm. a way. And I think that obviously I understand taking Denzel Aberdeen, I think he can end up being a really good player. But it was unfortunate that Florida wasn't able to retain one of those front court players either in Reed or, or Malik Reno because they had to, with 12 guys on the roster in, in August, go take Alex Schmizik, who ended up getting here on, on time in campus. And, you know, I think it's a very much a project in a way, but it really has made it so that they only have, you know, seven, eight guys that they feel confident playing more than five minutes a night on this team. And when you get into February, you really are going to have to rely on some good fortune with injuries. You're going to have to rely on those guys being productive. You're going to have to rely on, uh, you know, avoiding that freshman wall. If you're playing a guy like Google 25, 30 minutes a night, I mean, there's a lot that has to go right for that to happen for Florida to keep this up because of, what the end of their rotation of the bench is looking like right now. Jason Jatobo can give you a couple good minutes a night, but other than him, you're seeing, you know, Denzel, Alex Schmizik kind of sit with those walk-ons for most of the game. And I think moving forward, it's going to be really interesting to see whether, and this is a little bit more big picture, less so than about Florida. Are we going to see maybe a return to the five stars, to the transfers once, you know, we're done with all this COVID stuff and, the the years are gone in a way and we're back to just you know 17 versus 22 year olds <laughs> are we going to see these international players and freshmen get more run because right now they're kind of the victims of this you know jam-packed college basketball where so many people still have eligibility and have transferred and are playing elsewhere because there's a lot of guys sitting on the bench who would be playing right now at power six levels who are waiting their turns because other guys still have eligibility yeah, it's it's still going to be a couple of years before yeah, all these these extra years wash out. So it'll be interesting to see how how that affects things. Um, I, I, I'm sorry to listeners, we're really not going to talk about Alabama. We've just I've just had too much fun asking asking Graham about other stuff. But uh, that is a big game, of course. And uh, so here's my I'm I'm going to tie this in, but you know Alabama, of course, say the number one in the country in, in tempo, have been outstanding defensively, um, pretty good offensively, fifth in Ken Palm. Um, so, so right now, of course, from a bracketology standpoint, of course, the Tennessee win uh, was something the Gators desperately needed. Get that marquee win um, against the team that was number two in the net at the time. And and there's a little bit of, uh, um, I, I'll say a kind of thought that that was mentioned even on the broadcast against Kentucky. And I don't think it was foolish by any means. I'm not looking to um, disparage anyone who said it, but there's an idea that if the Gators win the games they're supposed to win and you know, lose the games they're supposed to lose the rest of the way that they'll make the NCAA tournament. And it's interesting because for much of the year, even, you know, on this podcast, we've mentioned, oh, you know, the Gators, you know, we're in the SEC. The Gators are going to have all the chances they need to like right the ship if they're a good enough basketball team to do so. Well, now when you actually look at the schedule and, and what remains, it looks like the Gators are really only going to have three quad one wins available um, the rest of the way, at least in the regular season. Um, and if you go by the kind of thought process of, uh, you know, if the Gators have kind of so far beat the teams they're supposed to beat, lose the teams they're supposed to lose to, that would suggest a loss on the road to this very talented Alabama team. Um, that would be a loss to Arkansas on the road in the middle of the month. And then that would be beating Kentucky at home, um, when they have that return game. So for the Gators, 
that would ultimately mean they were three and 10 in quadrant one games going into the SEC tournament. Um, I can see, you know, so Graham is shaking his head on this zoom. So I'm going to suggest that uh, he thinks that that's maybe not going to be good enough to get into the NCAA tournament. And I think I agree with him. So certainly I would not call this game against Alabama, you know, must win, but yeah. Do you, do you, are, are you with me? Do you think like the, the time of beat who you're supposed to beat and it's okay if you lose to the teams you're supposed to lose to, like, do you think that that's kind of gone? Like, do you think the Gators are going to have to steal one of these games against Arkansas and, and, and or Alabama um, to make an NCAA tournament or where are you at for, you know, this is, this is the open question of the Gators and bracketology. Take it wherever you want to take it. That's really tough because I think it's going to make us check a lot of what we thought we knew, right? We had said time and time again, if you win 10 games in the SEC, if you finish top five in the SEC, you're making the tournament. I had said that time and time again, and it, that seems to make sense. I mean, look at the teams in the SEC, Kentucky, you know, Tennessee, Alabama, Arkansas, that's four right there. If you're right after them, you should be in, in my mind, especially if you played those teams. Go back to last year, Florida finishes nine and nine. Five teams finish 99. If Florida wins one more game, they finish fifth in the SEC. Incredible. Now, <laughs> do I think one more game last year would have got them into the tournament? No. I think that they were maybe two games away, which made me would have last year checked what we're probably going to check right now. If Florida finishes fifth in the SEC and they win 10 SEC games, not only, and, and I got to give Jacob a credit, some credit to this, but he'll be the winningest first year head coach um in conference play in florida history and i said to jacob at the time like i'm sure that a lot of programs are able to say that right now especially in the COVID era where you can rebuild your roster mm. overnight and i mean look at kansas state what they're doing so i'm sure it's happening a lot at a lot higher rate right now than ever before with the focus on the net the focus on quadrant one i don't think it's good enough for florida to simply bank on where they're going to finish in conference play I think they do need to end up stealing one more. Maybe they can get some luck. I, I would have to look at this, but maybe one of those other teams that they, you know, beat in, in quadrant two can end up being a quadrant one, one win when all is said and done. I don't know. I'd have to go back and actually look at their upcoming slates. I know it's a possibility. But for Florida, I think that they need to be right now thinking that they're going to need to win the games they need to win. They get to play Vanderbilt twice. They get to play Ole Miss. Vanderbilt's 125 in the net rankings. Ole Miss is 108 er, backwards. Vanderbilt's 108. Ole Miss is 125 in the net rankings. I mean, that's th three games right there against teams within the, the 100s right there. Then you factor in LSU. That's four right there. So if they can win those, and then if they can steal one at, at Alabama, at Arkansas, in my mind, that is enough. But banking on that happening, um, I can't do that right now. Those are tough places to play. A lot of respect for Nate Oates and Eric Musselman. I think that Florida would have to go in there and steal one to keep themselves in the net rankings, keep them a little bit more you know, higher in the bubble, because where it stands right now, I don't think that they get out of the bubble just by beating LSU, Vanderbilt, Ole Miss, beating Georgia again. I mean, if they win those games, yeah, they're going to have double-digit SEC wins, but they may feel like Texas A&M last year, where they feel like they made a late push, had a good case, but they get – they get left out here. Yeah. I mean, I'll save you some time, Graham, because I did look at that. I don't see anyone jumping quadrants. Like again, like a lot of Florida's quad twos are way in quad two. And you know, it's the, the only one that's kind of, 
possible is like Missouri's 48th and they need to get to 30 um, for that. Cause it was a game and game. So I don't think that's going to happen. And, but that's the only one that would be like reasonable. I will say this um, Mississippi state is like holding strong in like the low forties. And that one would, that was one of the ones where like, Oh, this could drop to a quad two. Um, they're in like the low forties, I think, or high fifties. And that would have to drop to like 75th. So that they would seem Utah. Pretty- they beat Utah, I believe. And so they're and Utah's doing pretty well. And so they're rooting for Utah the rest of the way. If Utah, if Utah wins out, Mississippi state gets that boost. And then. Yeah. yeah so unlikely, nothing you want to bank on. Nothing want to bank on. So I do think that all these games are going to kind of hold is what they are. So I, so again, like I, 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 it's again, I, I hate saying like, Oh, must win games, but man, it is looking like you absolutely have to beat Vandy, Ole Miss, Vandy again, Georgia again, LSU again, because those games are the Gators will be fairly heavily favored. And uh, again, it's, it's looking at three and 10 in quad one, unless you you steal one. And then that's not a great place to be going to NCAA tournament. So we are starting to get into like the, and again, the Tennessee win did wonders and still, um, still there's plenty of work to do. So um, that's obviously going to be something to to follow. uh, But it's, it's one of those things where like, again, on the, on the broadcast, they mentioned a couple of times that, you know, the games are seen to like win the games that they're supposed to win. And yeah, I just don't know if that's going to be good enough, but it'll keep them in the conversation, but it's going to make things pretty uncomfortable there in sec play. Um, I have already taken Graham for Graham's more of Graham's time than I said I would. Um, So I am very thankful for you. Um, I did want to ask just one final question. I know you're a big music fan. I was going to ask if you had one artist or album or anything like that, that you could recommend um, to me and the listeners. Cause I'm, I'm always looking for music when I'm watching film. Um, always looking, you know, for something in the background when I'm working and I'm sure people listening here love music too. So what's, what's something you can recommend? And I did not prepare Graham for this. So we'll see what he's got um, off the top of the dome. I'm glad you asked though. I get to, I get to push a little bit of a life story real quick. Uh, I recommend everyone listen to the band up from your area called always. A-L-V-V-A-Y-S, two V's instead of a W, but pronounced always. They're up there from Canada. Uh, actually had concert tickets to see them in Houston in November. We flew in for the the college, uh, the Texas A&M game, the college station, and I get up off the plane. We had the tickets. I ended up getting the flu. Couldn't go to the concert. I think their album's my favorite of the year. We're, you know, you know we're, we're both obsessed. Me and my girlfriend are both obsessed, and so... In March, we actually, I'm coming to Canada for the first time, Eric. I will be up in Canada, in Vancouver, in the middle of March. We're seeing always back-to-back nights wow. in Vancouver in March for the end of their tour. We're really excited. So give them a listen. They're, they're pretty good. I'm a big fan. Uh, easy to listen to. And they have one of the best albums of the year in my mind, Blue Rev. So I appreciate you asking me that. That's, you know, I don't get a chance to talk about music too much. I'm a huge music fan, music buff, movies also. So anytime we have a chance to talk about you know, a little bit more of what we're enjoying outside sports. I always love it, man. Yeah, I'll have to do that in the offseason, get, in, get into a little more of that stuff. But, hey, cool, you're traveling across the continent and getting to the, you know, Pacific Northwest or a little yeah, bit. Pumped. That'll be cool. <laughs> uh, but anyways, you know, honestly, I'm going to be honest with you, Graham. I would find it a little bit hard to believe that someone listening to this, uh, you know, doesn't know who you are, doesn't already follow you. But just in case, can you let everyone know where they can find your work? That's too kind of you, man. I. I hope everyone follows Jacob Rudner as well. That's at Jacob mm. Rudner on Twitter. Appreciate you having both of us on to promote what we're doing and, and get a chance to talk to you. I always love having a chance to pick your brain. You've put out a fantastic product and you have one of the best minds in basketball, man. So I, I hope you uh, keep keep killing it. I know you're doing your thing up there too. So just want to say that. I, I really appreciate you having me on and 
we could talk for hours on here. So it's a shame a little bit that I have to run here, but <laughs> you can find me at swamp two, four, seven. That's where you find all of our content. We've got a little podcast as well. We don't cover basketball nearly as in depth on the podcast as you do here, but we try and hit on every topic that we, that we cover for Florida athletics. You can check out the message board as well. If you're interested in subscribing, we got a lot of good deals going on right now, but if you pay for an annual pass, you also get paramount plus access for a year. It's a really good deal. Not even just saying that because I work for them, but you can also find me on Twitter at Graham Hall underscore. Happy to answer anything there. If I didn't address it here, reach out, DM me. Always love talking all things Gators. And as you now know, music, movies, anything, make some conversation. I'm, I'm happy to, to talk to anyone. So we're going to have to do this again here soon. You know, once we can look back on our takes in a month and see if winning those games did do it for Florida or if some of these guys, Kowasi Reeves, have a little improved shooting down the stretch here. We're gonna have to make sure that we uh, come here and eat a little crow, and I can say that I was wrong, or or maybe we can <laughs> maybe we can gloat a little bit. I'll try not to gloat, but you know, it always feels good to remind people that hey, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, some sometimes we get it. Sometimes we get it right. That's for sure. But uh, uh, again, thank you, thank you so much. Um, so so happy to have you. So go Gators and keep attacking closeouts.